Thank you, Anna. So Christine wasn't able to share her testimony today. Christine is usually in a wheelchair back here, and that's uh, Bruce Wiley's uh, cousin, and uh, her wheelchair wasn't working right, and when you're handicapped, without your wheelchair, you can't go anywhere. So we'll hear from her another Sunday. She wasn't able to be here today. Um, So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. I'm not going to ask somebody to quote it this morning, um, but I think that those three verses are, I would say if you can't do the whole chapter, those would be the the three that I think I would want you to focus on, because I think they capture uh, the chapter, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to pick up with, with, I talked about J.I. Packer, he turned 91 yesterday, and he's written this book recently called Finishing our course with joy, and he's mainly talking about retirement and to seniors, but I think it applies to all of us because, Lord willing, we'll be there someday, and we want to know how to finish well, and we want to hear from people that are, that are towards the end, and they're telling us, this is how you need to be running. And he talks about the last lap, and he says, the biblical expectation, indeed, promise of ripeness, growing, and service to others, continuing as we age with God, is the substance of the last lap image of our closing years in which we finish our course. Runners in a distance race, like jockeys in a horse race, always try to keep something in reserve for a final spring. And my contention is going to be that so far as our bodily health allows, we should aim to be found running the last lap of the race of our Christian life as we would say flat out. The final spring, so I urge, should be a sprint indeed. And he says because of that, there's things that we have to fight against, particularly as we get older. And he tackles daydreaming and indulgence of nostalgia of our unhealthy habits, making for unrealism and discontent. Like all bad habits, they tighten their grip on us until we set ourselves against them, and with God's help, we break them. Elderly retirees are prone to find that a discipline breaking of them is an increasingly necessary task in life's last lap, in which steady looking ahead, Hebrews 11, and each present moment becomes a bigger and bigger factor in inner spiritual health. As we get older, there's a tendency to want to look back and to think of some golden age where that was where it was good, that life was good in the neighborhood, so to speak. And he's saying, guard against that. And then he talks about this wrong way of which our culture, we're swimming as fish upstream. Because here's where our culture is. He's saying that how it, how it caters, what it's appealing to the elderly. It says, basically, when you retire, you're off the treadmill, out of the rat race, and now at last, you're your own man or woman, and you can concentrate on having fun. You have your pension, health services are there to look after your body. You've got games, parties, and entertainments are provided in abundance to help pass the time. So go ahead and practice self-indulgence to the limit. Fill your life with novelties and hobbies, anything and everything that will hold your interest. As far as society is concerned, you're now on the shelf. You only have yourself, with or without your spouse, to please and look after and worry about. So concentrate on that and life as if as and live as if your life of retirement with, with enough health and strength of daily functioning will go on forever, being constantly lengthened by modern, modern medical magic. You are entitled to be cared for as long as you live, 
can be, and you can be made the last, so make the most of it. If your old age is dreary and boring, it will be entirely your own fault, and you don't want that. And he's saying, well, I see, I, I see this agenda, he says, as well meant as it is, is wrong-headed in the extreme. He says, I think it's ironically deceptive, calculated in effect to produce the precise opposite of the fullness of elderly life that it purports to promote. What's wrong with it? For the moment, he said, I leave aside its lack of Christian content and focus on the fact that it prescribes idleness, self-indulgence, and irresponsibility as the goal of one's declining years. This, over time, will generate a burdensome sense that one's life is no longer significant, but has become, quite simply, useless. Well, I want to hold up for you the contrast, which is Hebrews 11. And it's the examples that were given between Abel and Abraham. These all died in faith. The these are those between Abel and Abraham that are living by faith. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, or the better word is confessed, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land of which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. Now, I believe these are the key verses in Hebrews 11, right here, because they unlock the reason why everyone did what they did. Here we have the common denominator between the faith of Abel to Abraham. And notice that there isn't any miracles that they did here. There's no mention of any miracles. There's no mention of any extraordinary feats that they accomplished. No mention of the parting of the Red Sea or being taken up by God before they died or, or being the ultimate doomsday prepper, prepper with the ultimate survival kit of building an ark for 120 years. None of that's mentioned. The key words in this text are two verbs, two adjectives, and I'll throw in an adverb. The two verbs are desiring and seeking. That's the essence of faith. They are desiring and seeking. They're seeking a homeland, and they're desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. So there's your verbs. And they are doing this by faith because it can't be seen by the naked eye. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. There's your adverb in the Greek, from a distance. It's, and because of this greeting them from a distance and not having them in their fullness, as a result, you have these two adjectives, that they're strangers and exiles on the earth. How about you this morning? Is that the trajectory of your life? By those verbs and by those adjectives? That you are seeking and desiring something that this world can't give you and that you are a stranger and an exile as a result because these things are still afar off. Now, I don't want to spoil the movie Dunkirk one of the scenes that I like, and I do recommend the movie. I think there's some good courageous things in there. Uh, but there's one part where 
the one guy, one of the officers, is seeing through the binoculars what the other guy can't see. And he sees the smile come to his face, and he wants to see what he's seeing. And so he gives him the binoculars, and he too is able to see what he wouldn't have been able to see with his naked eye. That's what faith is. It's binoculars. It's being able to see things in the Word of God that you're able to see something now that you hadn't seen before. And it changes the entire direct trajectory and direction of your life. That's what faith is. And when we do that, we start to live in such a way that all of a sudden we are now becoming strangers and exiles on this earth. And we're going to flesh that out this morning. What does that mean? To desire a better country, to desire a heavenly one, to seek a homeland. Well, people who speak this way, you know, it says they're confessing. They're, 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 their lives are different. We talked about Johnny Erickson Todd in the children's sermon. And her extended quote, when she says she's going to thank God for this wheelchair, she said this in a blog post. She said, um, I hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct, but I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven, and then in the new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands, pierced hands, saying, thank you, Jesus. And he will know that I mean it, because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings. And I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. You get it? People who speak thus, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. That's a stranger in an exile speaking. That's not normal. That's Christian. Recently, I was with some friends that I hadn't seen in 15 years. I had the privilege of doing their wedding, performing their ceremony, and then I'd come up here to pastor a church, and they went on their direction. I've got on mine, and they happened to be coming back from vacation, and they wanted to stop in, and he's now a professor at a Christian college, and it was just so nice to catch up as you get older and you, and you catch up with old friends and you pick up right where you left off and your fellowship is in Jesus and it was a true signpost as C.S. Lewis would call it of just a pointer of, of great things to come but the one thing that encouraged me and it also got me to think as well as they were telling me about they were in a PCA church and the church really wasn't preaching the gospel and what they meant by that was it wasn't that, the, that Jesus wasn't being preached, that Jesus is Lord and, you know, Jesus is your Savior. But it was done in such an arrogant manner, like anybody with half a brain would know. And it was very condescending. And the tone and tenor was that if you had real problems in the church, you certainly couldn't go to anybody to share them. You would keep it to yourself because we've all got it together. So they're preaching the gospel, but they weren't really preaching the gospel that broken people didn't feel like they could breathe. And it made me think, what about our church? And they shared, they went to this other church that, and they said as they were hearing the pastor preach the gospel, they both just started weeping before the service was over. 
And they're just weeping like babies because they said it had been over a year since they had heard the gospel preached to them. And that the good news was still the best news in the whole world. And they wept for joy because they desire a better country. They desire a heavenly one. And they were reminded of what they longed for the most. They're strangers, aliens, seeing the promises and greeting them from afar. How about you? Do you love hearing the gospel preached? F.B. Meyer, he says this on this passage. He says, how will people believe us when we talk about our hope if it does not wean us from excessive devotion to the things around us? If we are quite as eager, careworn, or quite as covetous, or grasping, quite as dependent on the pleasures and fascinations of this passing world as themselves, may they not begin to question whether our profession be true on the one hand or whether after all there be a a real city yonder on the other. If we really believe this, it loosens the grip and the choker hold that we have on this life. And we're not as careworn or covetous or grasping. It begins to change us. Matthew Henry put it like this. These people that confess that they were strangers and aliens on the earth. He says, they're strangers as saints whose home is heaven. They are pilgrims as they're traveling towards home, though often meanly and, and, and slowly. Their acknowledgement of their own condition, they're not ashamed to own it. Both their lips and their lives confess their present condition. Here's what he says. They expected little from the world. They cared not, they cared not to engage much in it. They endeavored to lay aside every weight, to gird up the loins of their minds, to mind their way, to keep company and pace with their fellow travelers, the church, looking for difficulties, there's an interesting one, looking for difficulties and bearing them and longing to get home. They expected little from the world because they knew that's not where their treasure is. Now, Jonathan Edwards has, and I'm I'm giving you a few uh, classic things here this morning of some great people of old, but Jonathan Edwards, has some, he's got a lot of classic sermons, but if there's one that you need to read if you haven't read, it's called Heaven is a World of Love. And it's the last chapter in his sermons from Charity and Its Fruits, which is basically sermons on 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter on love. And you remember the chapter talks about love bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never ends, it goes on forever. And as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it's going to pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now I know in part. And then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. You see, what Paul is saying is what's really important as the people of God is love. It's faith, hope, and love, but love is is what's going to remain forever. Spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, knowledge, those gifts are going to pass away. And and even faith and hope are not going to be needed in heaven because it will all be realized. You will see face to face and be fully known. But what will remain, you see, is love is paramount. 
now and forever. And so what Edward says in this sermon is that there's three worlds. There are three worlds. The first world is the world we live in. It's a world in which good and evil are so mixed together as to be a sure sign that this world is not to continue forever. So you have the first world, which is where good and evil are mixed. And then you have the world, he says, another is heaven, a world of love without any hatred. And then the third world is, is hell, and it's a world of hatred where there is no love, which is the world to which all of you who are in a Christless state, in a Christless state properly belong. The last is the world where God manifests his displeasure and wrath, as in heaven he manifests his love. Everything in hell is hateful. So he draws out the extreme. So you've got the mixture now of good and evil. Then you have all good and all evil, all love, all hatred. And then think about that for a minute, because I think it's a little bit, it, we, our minds don't tend to go there much. Because he actually, I mean, he's got the, 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 most of the, the whole sermon is about heaven's a world of love. But he does say this about hell that I think is helpful for you to get. He says, um, there is no person or thing to be seen there that is amiable or lovely, nothing that is pure or holy or pleasant, but everything abominable and odious. There are no beings there but devils and damned spirits that are like devils. Hell is, as it were, a vast den of poisonous hissing serpents, the old serpent who's the devil and Satan, and with him all his hateful brood. There are none in hell who've been, but what have been haters of God and so have procured his wrath and hatred on themselves, and therefore they shall continue to hate him forever. There'll be no love to God will ever be felt in hell, but everyone there perfectly hates him and will so continue to hate him without any restraint that will exp and without any restraint will express their hatred to him, blaspheming and raging against him while they gnaw their tongues for pain. And though they all join together in their enmity and opposition to God, yet there's no union or friendliness among themselves. They agree in nothing but hatred and the expression of hatred. They hate God and Christ and angels and saints in heaven, and not only so, but they hate one another. Like a company of serpents or vipers, not only spitting out venom against God, but at one another, biting and stinging and tormenting each other. You want to hear more? I'll give you one more paragraph. The devils in hell will hate these damned souls. They hated them while in this world, and therefore it was with much subtlety and indefatigable temptations they sought their ruin. They thirsted for the blood of their souls because they hated them. They longed to get them in their power to torment them. They watched them as a roaring lion does his prey because they hated them. Therefore they flew upon them, their souls like hell bounds, and as soon as they were, they, they were parted from their bodies full of eagerness to torment them. And now they have them in their power. They will spend eternity in tormenting them with their utmost strength and cruelty that devils are capable of. And he goes on. I don't want that world. Let's go to the world of love. A much better world, wouldn't you say? Heaven is a world of love. And he says, what a tranquility there will be in such a world of this. And who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this? How sweet and holy and joyous. What a haven of rest to enter. Having passed through the storms and tempests of this world in which pride and selfishness and envy and malice and scorn and contempt and contention and vice as waves of a restless ocean always rolling and often dashed about in violence and fury. What a canaan of rest to come to after going through this waste and howling wilderness full of snares and pitfalls and poisonous serpents where no rest could be found. And then he talks about what this, what this love will be like. And he says, 
that no inhabitants of that blessed world in heaven will ever be grieved with the thought that they are slighted by those that they love or that their love is not fully or fondly returned. As the saints will love God with an inconceivable ardency of heart and to the utmost of their capacity, so they will know that he has loved them from all eternity and still loves them and will continue to love them forever. And God will then gloriously manifest himself to them and they shall know that all the happiness and glory which they are possessed of are the fruits of his love. And with the same ardor and fervency which the saints love the Lord Jesus Christ and their love will be accepted and they shall know that he has loved them with a faithful, yea, even with a dying love. They shall then be more sensible. Now they are with this great love it manifested in Christ that he should lay down his life for them. Then will Christ open to their view the great fountain of his love, of love in his heart for them beyond all that they had ever seen before. Hereby the love of the saints to God and Christ is to be seen reciprocated and the declaration fulfilled, I love them that love me. And though the love of God to them cannot properly be called the return of love because he loved them first, yet the sight of his love will on that very account the more fill them with joy and admiration and love to them. You see, heaven is a world of love. And that's why Edwards would go on to say that the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husband, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the ocean. So what do you desire this morning? Where do you want to be? Now let me give you three more quotes from C.S. Lewis. First one, all get what they want. They don't always like it. You get what you want. What do you really want this morning? Lewis also said, aim at heaven. I like this picture, by the way. You got to love the internet. I did not make, you know, I mean, I could not do the planets like that out of clouds, you know, or, or the uh, continents. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. You see, this is getting at the trajectory of your life. And the last one is this. Each day we are becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. You see, you're either moving towards this world of love or this world of hate. You're in this mixture now, but that's the destination. There's a world of love and a world of hatred. One is heaven, one is hell, and that's a future eternity. So which direction you are headed in and what are you living for? How do you know where you're going this morning? Well, I wanna suggest two things to you this morning. Signposts and sirens. Signposts and sirens. The first is signpost. And if you're familiar with reading C.S. Lewis, this is a big term in his thinking. And he's written a book called Surprised by Joy. And the very last page of the book, when I read it, my soul just leaped from my chest because I just love this quote. Because he's talking about joy all the way through the book. And he talks about these signposts, as he calls them. And things that, they, they, they have a pang to them. 
Meaning there's a longing, but it's not fulfilled. And if you try to go back and, or, or try to focus in on the moment itself, then, then the joy will escape you. And he's talking about ultimately it's pointing you to something beyond. This is what he says. But what in conclusion of joy, for that after all, is what this story's mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. While the other was in doubt, the pointer naturally loomed large in my thoughts. When we're lost in the woods, the, sign of a, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who first sees it cries, look, and the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signpost every few miles, we shall not stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, nor on this road, though their pillars are of silver and their letterings, lettering of gold. We would be at Jerusalem. And then he says, not of course that I don't often catch myself stopping to stare at roadside objects of even less importance. And he ends his book at that point, meaning in his fallen state, he still wanders and, and but the idea is that we would be at Jerusalem. We see these incredible signposts. We see a Grand Canyon. We see a Niagara Falls. We experience beautiful music and you go to a concert and you hear the most sublime things you've ever heard. And you have this most intimate moment with your friends and you're sharing of things of eternity and you're sharing such a bond. And they're, they're, these are all signposts. They're pointing to something beyond. For unbelievers, that's all they have. They have to suck all the life out of that moment because it's never going to come back to them. This is all the, the heaven they'll ever know. But for believers, it's a signpost we recognize. We're on our way. We're going to be at Jerusalem. We like these signposts. But that's not where our treasure is. And so we don't have to be endlessly depressed at the end of the vacation. Thinking, man, that's it. It's okay. I mean, I had a secretary, she really believed, she wanted to go to the beach as much as possible because she took the verse literally that there will be no more sea, that there wouldn't be any ocean in, in heaven, so she wanted to get to the beach as much as possible. I'd say, Betsy, there's gonna be an ocean in heaven, okay? The idea of sea is this idea of chaos, all chaos will end, God's gonna win. You, you don't have to use this as an excuse to get to the beach, okay? <laughs> it's gonna be okay. So Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, Another great book. He's got this great quote where he says, I've never been to heaven, yet I miss it. Eden's in my blood. The best things of life are souvenirs from Eden, appetizers of the new earth. There's just enough of them to keep us going, but never enough to, never enough to make us satisfied with the world as it is or ourselves as we are. We live between Eden and the new earth, pulled together what we once were and what we yet will be. As Christians, we're linked to heaven in ways too deep to comprehend. Somehow, according to Ephesians 6, 2, 6, we've already seated with Christ in heaven. So we can't be satisfied with less. Desire is a signpost pointing to heaven. Every longing for better health is a longing for the new earth. Every longing for romance is a longing for the ultimate romance with Christ. Every desire for intimacy is a desire for Christ. Every thirst for beauty is a thirst for Christ. Every taste of joy is but a foretaste of greater and more vibrant joy. Do you get it? It's a signpost. 
Here, though, is where sin perverts and taints. God's greatest gifts are Satan's greatest weapons. God's given these wonderful signposts and mile markers in our journey, but corruption happens when we abuse God's gifts and make gods of them, thinking they will satisfy us independently of God or short-circuiting God. What do you want most? And if the answer is a spouse or a child or promotion or reputation or intimacy or romance or relaxation or a vacation, what you're saying what you want most is a signpost. It's, an, it's, it's just, it's not the real thing. And that's what the Bible refers to as sin, is missing the mark of the glory of God and exchanging God's glory for his gifts. And that's called idolatry. And it's what makes us impure when we cling to those things. Jesus is saying that heaven is for those who are pure in heart. It's reserved for those who are single-minded in their affections and devotions, not to signposts, but for God himself. And so we take 1 Peter 2.11 seriously. It's the New King James Version says, Beloved, I beg you. It's a little stronger than urge you. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, that is who we are. If that's who we are, we're to abstain from fleshly lust, which war, they're strategizing against your soul. And so how do we fight this fight? Because it's a real fight. Well, in Greek literature, we have these two different stories of the sirens. So we've got signposts and sirens. And this illustration comes from Sam Storms from two of his books. And he talks about these two different stories. Well, the first is from Homer's Odyssey. And so you, if you remember the sirens, they, were, they lived on these three small rocky islands and they would sing these beautiful songs that would entice the sailors to come to them. But coming to the siren, which sounded so beautiful, resulted in the crashing of their ship into the islands and death. It's a very vivid picture, actually, of sin and death. So in Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus passes by the land of the sirens, and his strategy to avoid disaster was to plug the ears of all the sailors with beeswax so they couldn't hear the sirens. But he himself wanted to hear the sirens. So, but he didn't want to, to fall prey to following the the, the enchanting call. So he had his sailors tie him up to the mast with ropes. And so they roped him and tied him up. And so as they're passing around these sirens, the sailors have the beeswax in their ears and he is listening and they say to him, come hither as thou fairest. Renown Odysseus, great glory of the Achaeans. Stay thy ship that thou mayest listen to the voice of us too. For never yet has any man rowed past this isle in his black ship until he's heard the sweet voice from our lips. Nay, he has the joy of it and he goes his way a wiser man for he knows all his toils that in wild Troy the Argives and Trojans endured through the will of the gods. And we know that all things that come to, that come to pass upon this fruitful earth and so they sang this song to him. And the story goes on to say, so they spoke, sending forth their beautiful voice. And he says that my heart was fain to listen. And I bade my comrades loose me, nodding to them with my brows. But they fell to their oars and they rowed on. And presently, Paramedes and Eucalocus arose and bound me with yet more bounds and drew them tighter. But when they had rowed past the sirens and we could no more hear their voice or their song, they straight away, my trusty comrades, took away the wax from their ears and they untied him. He made it. 
barely. He was pleading for them to let him loose because he wanted to go dash upon the rocks. That's one way to get around the sirens. It's not a heart that's changed, but he thankfully had good friends that wouldn't let him loosen his chains. But I got to tell you, there are times where we need as God's people to put wax in our ears, and sometimes we need accountability partners to tie us to the mast and say, whatever you do, don't let it loose. There are times where our hearts aren't strong enough and each of us has our own particular kryptonite of a particular area where we are unbelievably vulnerable to sin. And it might be pornography, it might be alcohol, it might be prescription drugs, it might be to bitterness, it might be to unforgiveness or to depression to the point where you're thinking really bad thoughts. God has wired us all in different ways. We're all weak. We all have certain vulnerabilities And we have to know our hearts. And sometimes we do need to just tie ourselves up. But that's not ultimately the best siren. We need the other one. And so this other siren in Greek mythology, it's come from, from, and so this one, the first one, uh, Homer's Odyssey, that's in 8th century BC. In the 3rd century BC, we have this uh, story, epic poem called the Argonautica, and in this epic poem, Jason, like Odysseus, he's also going to pass the sirens in his ship. But he had another strategy to avoid being dashed upon the rocks from following the enchanting sirens. And rather than tying himself up or putting beeswax in ears, Jason brought along Orpheus, whose music on the flute and the lyre was even better than the music from the sirens. And so instead of, basically, he fought desire with desire. They simply, when they would hear the sirens, they would have Orpheus play his music, which was more alluring, more beautiful, more desirable than anything the sirens had to offer. So how about you this morning? Are you dashed and crashed upon the rocks? Is there a particular sin that has its bondage hold upon you? The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Jesus said he didn't come from the righteous. He came to seek and save the lost. We cry out and we tell him we're lost and that we need him to save us from ourselves and from our sin. He came to save us. And for us that are saved, how are you waging war against the fleshly lust as strangers and sojourners? And as we fight these different battles with sin, What we really need is to fight at the level of desire and pray that God would renew our desires. And the way he renews our desires is you gotta stay hydrated. You wanna finish that last lap well? You wanna run well? Athletes that that do stuff, they, they talk about negative splits. Veronica knows what negative splits is. You, when you run a race and it's idea, you set yourself out so that the second half, I want to run faster than the first half. The only way you can do that is you've got to have the proper food and the proper drink. I went out for a ride on my bike on Friday, and one of my friends just typed me at the end. He said, stay hydrated, because it's 95 degrees out. You're going out after Friday after work, and you're going to bike 20 miles. If you don't have the right amount of fluids, you get halfway out, and I am a sweater. 
I, I, I need twice as much liquid as the average drinker, okay? I mean, it's just a proven fact. I mean, I just go through the stuff. So I had two full bottles, and if I don't, I mean, it was one time where I got out, and I realized I wasn't going to have enough to get back. And now I'm 15 miles out, and I'm 15 miles from water. Now what are you going to do? You want to finish well. You've got to stay hydrated. How do we stay hydrated? It's the Word of God. When we find ourselves being duped and being deceived by the world and drinking it in and not running well, it's because we, we didn't stay hydrated. We got tired in the race because we, kept, we didn't drink. We weren't, we weren't putting the, the food in. And now there's no way in the world we can do negative splits. We're not going to finish well. So we have to continue to fuel and hydrate. And when we do that, we are renewed as we see that God is better. God is better. He's better than sin. He's better than all that this world has to offer. He's not ashamed to be called their God, those that live like this. He's preparing for them the city. He's gone off to prepare a place for us, and he's coming back for us. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Here's a better siren call. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Who are you following? Come to the shepherd. He's leading us to eternal life. Why would we want to follow anything else? Come to him. Let's pray. Lord, we need your word. We need you, Lord Jesus, to speak to us through that word, to show us that you are so much better and sweeter, more beautiful, more desirable, better than rubies, better than silver, better than gold. We thank you for the better promise the better life that is found in Jesus. And so we come back afresh to him today. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Lord, we rest in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.